Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 233 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Soyuz 6, 7, and 8. It has been quite a while since the last Soyuz mission, so I wanted to quickly cover how we got to the Soyuz 6, 7, and 8 mission. The Soyuz program was intended to rejuvenate the Soviet space program by developing space rendezvous, docking, and practical extravehicular activity without tiring the cosmonaut, as was demonstrated by the U.S. in the Gemini program. These capabilities would be required for the Salyut space station. Soyuz 1, covered in episode 139 through 141, was launched with the goal of docking with the manned Soyuz 2 craft. But, even before the second craft was launched, problems with Soyuz 1 made it clear that Soyuz 2 had to be cancelled before the landing of Soyuz 1. This probably saved the lives of the three-man Soyuz 2 crew. I'm sure you recall Soyuz 1 ended with the death of cosmonaut Vladimir Komarov on April 23, 1967, due to a faulty parachute system. Soyuz 2 would have flown with that same defective system as Soyuz 1. As a result, the Soyuz spacecraft was revised for Soyuz 2 and Soyuz 3 in 1968. In the meantime, the Soviets did perform a successful docking in automatic mode with Cosmos 186 and Cosmos 188, as covered in episode 143. Soyuz 2 and 3, covered in episode 158, was an attempt at the first Soviet manned docking with an unmanned Soyuz vehicle. Cosmonaut Yegory Beregovoy piloted the Soyuz 3 and attempted to dock with an unmanned Soyuz 2. Beregovoy successfully rendezvoused, but could not dock with Soyuz 2. Soyuz 4 and 5, covered in episode 172 through 173, successfully rendezvoused and docked two manned Soyuz 7K OK spacecrafts and transferred two cosmonauts from Soyuz 5 to Soyuz 4 by means of a spacewalk since there was no method to transfer crew internally. Both spacecrafts made it back to the Earth, but Soyuz 5 had quite a rough descent. Which brings us to Soyuz 6, 7, and 8. After the flight of Soyuz 4 and 5, the Soviet manned space program was in a somewhat awkward position. The techniques tested in Soyuz 4 and 5, EVA transfer between two docked vehicles, were applicable to the manned lunar landing mission, but the docking systems and spacesuits would be different. Recall from previous episodes, General Kamanin was in charge of cosmonaut selection, training, and administration. According to an entry in Kamanin's diary for February 10, 1969, the OKB-1 Design Bureau, under Chief Designer Mission, planned a week-long Soyuz solo flight with two cosmonauts followed by a week-long docked flight with two spacecraft and five cosmonauts. The leadership, Secretary of the Central Committee for Defense and Space, Dmitry Ustinov, 
and the chairman for the State Commission for Soyuz, Kermin Karimov, were not satisfied with the limited missions planned and demanded something more impressive. Of course, early 1969 was a pivotal period. Apollo 8 had been flown around the moon, and a lunar landing was expected in the summer of 1969. The Soviet Union was planning to test its N-1 moon rocket and also to fly its automatic lunar sample returner during 1969 as well. But the 7K L-1 Zond, which was planned for a circumlunar flight, was not ready to fly and had been made more or less meaningless by the flight of Apollo 8. So chances to fly cosmonauts to the moon in 1969 were practically non-existent. Therefore, something else needed to be done to attempt to keep pace with the United States. But the choices were not so attractive. There was a definite requirement to test the contact docking system for the N1L3 lunar landing project in Earth orbit. But that may have seemed to the world as a repeat of earlier feats. Finally, on April 25, 1969, during a meeting of the Soyuz State Commission, it was decided that the solo and docking flights outlined for 1969 by the Design Bureau OKB-1 would be combined into a joint flight of three spacecraft. The plan was to fly Soyuz 6, 7, and 8 together in August of 1969. Soyuz 7 and 8 would dock, and Soyuz 6 would rendezvous with the dock pair and take pictures of it, as well as perform a welding experiment. This would provide another opportunity for testing the contact docking system and provide an opportunity for testing of many other orbital maneuvers by automation and manually, as well as space navigational measurements and procedures. With the mission plan decided, let's spend a little time on the hardware. The spacecraft for Soyuz 6, 7, and 8 was the Soyuz 7K-OK. Recall from previous episodes that the 7K-OK spacecraft was composed of three elements attached end-to-end, the orbital module, the descent module, and the instrumentation-slash-propulsion module. The crew occupied the central element, the descent module. The other two modules were jettisoned prior to re-entry. They would burn up in the atmosphere, so only the descent module returned to Earth. The Soyuz 7K-OK carried four engine types. The first was called the Approach Correction Engine. It was the main engine used for carrying out maneuvers in orbit, and also served as the retro-fire engine during re-entry. This engine could be activated manually by a simple on-off push button, or it could be activated automatically from the ground. The second engine type was the low-thrust engines. These were used for attitude control. 
They were moved by means of a handle located inside the spacecraft and could turn the spacecraft about any of its axes. The third type of engines was the translation thrusters. These were intended for turning the spacecraft in relation to its center of mass. They were also used for small approach displacement of the spacecraft during mutual maneuvering. They were controlled by means of a separate handle. The fourth type of engine was used for controlled descent, and these, in contrast with the others, were located on the descent module. These engines were used for carrying out programmed turns of the ship before re-entry into the denser layers of the atmosphere, and also for banking and stabilization in respect to the other axes during flight within the atmosphere. Soyuz controls were designed with the idea of liberating crews from the elementary functions of control which could be taken over by automatic equipment. Instead of having dozens of switches, each of which to perform a single function, maneuvers could be carried out by pressing a single button to activate a programmed operational sequence issuing dozens of commands. This greatly simplified the maneuvering of the spacecraft when time was short. However, each of the individual commands could also be initiated by the cosmonauts manually. The indicators on the Soyuz control panel show the position of the spacecraft above the surface of the Earth, the distance and rate of approach to other spacecraft, the parameters of the cabin atmosphere and the life support systems, the rate of charge or discharge of the chemical storage batteries, the network voltage and the parameters of the pneumohydraulic systems for controlling the various engines and thrusters. The controls were located in two groups, one on each side of the indicator panel. The push buttons made it possible to initiate operational systems of the spacecraft and to monitor procedures on the basis of signal lights on the control panel. Any two members of the spacecraft could control all of the systems, or the commander position could control all of them by himself. The left side group controlled the system of communication, descent, and life support, while the right side group controlled all of the remaining systems of the spacecraft. The Soyuz carrier rocket for all three spacecraft was the 11A511, a 1960s-era Soviet expendable rocket designed by OKB-1 and manufactured by State Aviation Plant No. 1 in Kubayshev, the Soviet Union. It was used to launch Soyuz spacecraft as part of the Soyuz program, initially on unmanned test flights, followed by the first 19 manned launches of the program. It also had the capability to be used as a ballistic missile. This version of the Soyuz launcher was introduced in 1966. It was derived from the Vostok launcher, which in turn was based on the R-7 intercontinental ballistic missile. It was initially a three-stage rocket with a Block 1 upper stage. The new version introduced an uprated core stage and strap-on boosters, which became standard for all R-7-derived launch vehicles. 
Moving on to crew selection. There was some drama in selection of the crews for Soyuz 6, 7, and 8. General Kamanin described in his diary the many twists and turns of the crew selection. But the main problem in the process was that the crew for the active docking ship Soyuz 8, Nikolaev and Sevastyanov, did not perform well enough in docking simulations. It was not until a meeting of the Military Industrial Commission on September 18, 1969, that the final crew assignments and planned launch date was set. The crews left for Baikonur on September 22nd, expecting the three launches to take place on October 5th, 6th, and 7th. But the flights were delayed because the Politburo had not yet approved the mission. The Politburo decision finally came on September 30th, and on the following day the State Commission decided to load the spacecraft with fuel and set the launch dates for October 11th for Soyuz 6, October 12th for Soyuz 7, and October 13th for Soyuz 8. The launch pads to be used were Area 31 for Soyuz 6, Area 1 for Soyuz 7, and Area 31 again for Soyuz 8. Now let's meet the two-man crew of Soyuz 6. Yagori Stepanovich Shonin was selected as the commander of Soyuz 6. He was born on August 3, 1935 in Rovinsky, Luhansk, Oblast, now the Ukraine, but he grew up in Balta of the Ukrainian SSR. Shonin's family hid a Jewish family from the Nazis during World War II. Shonin graduated from Yisk Military Pilot School in 1957 and graduated from Zukovsky Military Engineering Academy in 1968. Shonin was selected to be a cosmonaut in March of 1960. He was chosen as backup commander for Soyuz 4, but Soyuz 6 was his first and only spaceflight. He rose to the rank of lieutenant general in the Soviet Air Force. He left the space program in 1979 for medical reasons. Shonin later worked as the director of the 30th Central Scientific Research Institute in the Ministry of Defense. He was married and had four children. He was awarded Hero of the Soviet Union and Order of the Red Star, among other honors. He died of a heart attack in 1997. The second and final member of the Soyuz 6 crew was Valery Nikolaevich Kubasov. He was designated as the flight engineer for Soyuz 6. Kubasov was born January 7, 1935, in Vladimir Oblast, Russia. After finishing secondary school in 1952, he graduated from the Moscow Aviation Institute in 1958 as an aerospace engineer and reported to work at the Bureau led by Sergei Korolev. Initially focusing on ballistic studies, Kubasov worked on the design of the Voskhod capsule. He
He authored several studies on the calculation of spaceship trajectories and acquired a Master of Science degree in engineering. In May of 1964, while working for Korolev, Kubasov became one of a handful of civilian candidates who passed the preliminary medical screening for one of the Soviets' Voskhod missions. Two years later, after some relaxation of the existing rules, Kubasov was officially accepted into the newly established Civilian Cosmonaut Corps. Kubasov evaded death twice during his space career. The first time was when he was selected to the crew of Soyuz 2, which was found to have the same faulty parachute sensor that resulted in Vladimir Komarov's death on Soyuz 1. Soyuz 6 was Kubashov's first space mission. Following his mission, Kubashov began training to fly aboard the world's first space station, Salyut 1. Kubashov evaded death for the second time in 1971 when he was almost launched aboard the ill-fated Soyuz 11 mission. He was among the prime crew alongside Alexei Leonov. Medics from the Institute for Biomedical Problems in Moscow found a swelling on Kubasov's right lung. Fearing the onset of tuberculosis, the entire Soyuz 11 prime crew was grounded and replaced by the backup crew. In his memoir, Two Sides of the Moon, Alexei Leonov wrote, it turned out later that Kubasov was allergic to chemical insecticide used to spray trees. He did not have tuberculosis. The Apollo-Soyuz test project became Kubasov's second space mission, and he was a flight engineer on it. Kubasov spent several hours in the Apollo command and docking modules. During this project, Kubasov told the U.S. President Gerald Ford in a TV link-up, that they got good space food, some juice, some coffee, and lots of water. Kubasov's last space flight was aboard Soyuz 36 in 1980. During this flight, the Soyuz transported the crew that included Bertalan Fracas, the first Hungarian astronaut, to the Salyut 6 space station. Kubasov retired as a cosmonaut in November 1993. He died in Moscow of natural causes in February of 2014 at the age of 79. He was survived by his wife, one daughter, and one son. Now let's move on to the launch of Soyuz 6. On October 11, 1969, at 1410 Moscow time, Soyuz 6 was launched from Area 31 of the Baikonur Cosmodrome with spacecraft commander Yagori Shonen and flight engineer Valery Kubasov on board. At T plus 118 seconds, the side boosters were dropped. At T plus 160 seconds, the shroud and the escape tower were jettisoned. At T plus 300 seconds, the core stage separated. At T plus 540 seconds, the upper stage separated. And at T plus 583 seconds, 
Soyuz 6 entered orbit. The initial apogee was 223 kilometers, perigee 186 kilometers, the angle of inclination was 51.7 degrees, and the period of revolution was 88.36 minutes. One hour later, the Soviet Union announced the successful launch of Soyuz 6. Now let's meet the three-man crew of Soyuz 7. Antoly Vasilievich Filipchinka was chosen as the commander of Soyuz 7. He was born February 26, 1928 in Davidorka, Voronets Oblast, RSFSR. He graduated from the Soviet Air Force Military Academy in 1961, and he was selected to become a cosmonaut in 1963. He flew on the Soyuz 7 and Soyuz 16 missions. He rose to the rank of Major General in the Soviet Air Force. After leaving the space program in 1982, Philip Chinka became the Deputy Director of the OKB in Kharkov. In 1987, he earned the Candidate of Military Sciences degree. He was awarded Hero of the Soviet Union, Pilot Cosmonaut of the USSR, and the Order of Lenin, among other honors. He is married and has two children. As of November 2017, he is still living. Vladislav Nikolaevich Walkov was chosen as the flight engineer for Soyuz 7. He was born in November 1935 in Moscow. His father was an aviation design engineer. Walkoff graduated from the Moscow Aviation Institute in 1959. He was married and had one child. As an aviation engineer at Korolev's Design Bureau, he was involved in the development of the Vostok and the Voskhod spacecraft prior to his selection as a cosmonaut in May 1968. He flew aboard Soyuz 7 in 1969, and, unfortunately, he flew aboard Soyuz 11 on his second space mission in 1971. He spent 23 days on the Salyut 1, the world's first space station, but he was killed on the flight to return to Earth on June 30, 1971. Vladislav Wolkov was decorated twice as a hero of the Soviet Union, first on October 22, 1969, and posthumously on June 30, 1971. He was also awarded two Orders of Lenin and the title of Pilot Cosmonaut of the USSR. The lunar crater Walkoff and the minor planet 1790 Walkoff are named in his honor. A street in Moscow is named after him as well. Walkoff's ashes were interned in the Kremlin Wall on the Red Square in Moscow. The third and final member of the Soyuz 7 crew was Viktor Vasilievich Gorbatko. He served as the research engineer for Soyuz 7. Gorbatko was born on December 3, 1934, to Vasily and Matrina Gorbatko. 
Gorbatko was raised in the northern Caucasus settlement of Vincizaria. Gorbatko had four siblings, an older brother, Boris, two older sisters, Elena and Valentina, and Ludmila, the youngest sibling. Victor finished seventh grade in 1949 and then attended a secondary school in the Novokubansky district. Gorbatko's interest in becoming a pilot was sparked during World War II. His siblings often told him stories of brave pilots and their adventures, and he too followed in their footsteps. Upon joining the Soviet Army in 1952, Gorbatko requested to be assigned to a flight school. Following his enlisting, Gorbatko was sent to the 8th Military Aviation School of Pilot Basic Training in the Ukrainian town of Pavlograd, where he was taught to fly. Gorbatko graduated in June 1956 as a lieutenant in the Soviet Air Force. Gorbatko was married and had two children, both of them daughters. Gorbatko became part of the 86th Guards Fighter Regiment of the 119th Fighter Division, attached to the 48th Air Army operating out of Odessa Military District in Moldavia. In June 1957, Gorbatko achieved the rank of senior pilot, and in August 1958, he achieved the rank of second lieutenant. And in October, he achieved the military pilot's ranking third class. Gorbatko was among the first group of Soviet cosmonauts. He began training in early 1960, but he did not reach space until 1969. His first spaceflight was Soyuz 7. Gorbatko was also the commander of the 18-day-long Soyuz 24 mission in February of 1977, to the Salyut 5 space station. This was the last all-military spaceflight by the Soviet Union. In 1980, Gorbatko commanded Soyuz 37, which also carried the first Vietnamese astronaut. Gorbatko flew to Salyut 6 and landed in the Soyuz 36 capsule that had earlier docked at the space station. Gorbatko spent seven days and 20 hours in space on that mission. After leaving the space program in 1982, he taught at the Air Force Engineering Academy in Moscow. Gorbatko died on May 17, 2017, at the age of 82. Upon his death, he was buried in the Federal Military Memorial Cemetery. Now that we have met the crew... We will move ahead to the launch of Soyuz 7. Almost 24 hours after Soyuz 6, on October 12, 1969, the Soyuz 7 was launched at 13.45 Moscow time with spacecraft commander Filipchenka, flight engineer Walkoff, and research engineer Korbatko on board. At T plus 118 seconds, the side boosters were dropped. At T plus 160 seconds, the shroud and the escape tower were jettisoned. At T plus 300 seconds, the core stage separated. At T plus 540 seconds, the upper stage separated. And at T plus 583 seconds, Soyuz 7 entered orbit. 
just like Soyuz 6. The initial apogee was 226 kilometers, 3 kilometers higher than Soyuz 6. Perigee was 207 kilometers, 21 kilometers higher than Soyuz 6. The angle of inclination was 51.7 degrees, the same as Soyuz 6. The period of revolution was 88.6 minutes, almost identical to Soyuz 6. 45 minutes later, the Soviet Union announced the launch of Soyuz 7. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to the Thanksgiving Day episode number 233 of the Space Rocket History Podcast, entitled Soyuz 6, 7, and 8. Hope you enjoyed that episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. First of all, sincere apologies for mispronunciations of the Russian names in this episode. And I wanted to give a big shout out to all my longtime listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed and extend a warm welcome to my new listeners. I'm glad you're here. In case you hadn't heard, there is a new RSS feed for the first 23 episodes of the podcast. You can find it on the home page on the right side of the page. This means that the first 23 episodes are once again available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and all of your favorite podcatchers. I plan to add four or five more episodes to the archive this month. Today, we salute the Salyut Skylab donors. There are eight so far this year. Salyut Skylab donors contribute $60 or more during the calendar year. Thank you, Salyut Skylab donors. I had a couple afterthoughts about this week's episode. Well, we have two out of the three Soyuz spacecrafts in orbit. The next episode, we will get the third, Soyuz 8. Keep in mind that most of the planning for this mission took place before Apollo 11. The Soviets realized that they were falling behind the U.S. and that a Soviet manned moon mission was not possible in 1969. So, they needed something to show the world that the Soviet Union was still in the space business. Vasily Mission at OKB-1 planned for two separate missions in 1969, one for Soyuz-6 and another for the docking attempt of Soyuz-7 and 8. But the big bosses were not impressed with those missions. Yet the Soviets still needed to continue with Soyuz missions, especially docking practice. But the mission needed to have some flair, something that had never been done before, a space feat. So what could they do with what they had on hand? Well, flying three manned spacecraft at the same time would be a good space feat, and Having seven cosmonauts in space at the same time would be a good space feat as well. So, 
combining dimensions of Soyuz 6, 7, and 8 into a giant rendezvous in the sky mission seemed like just what they needed. And there are unconfirmed reports that during the docking of Soyuz 7 and 8, an EVA was planned to transfer a cosmonaut from Soyuz 7 to Soyuz 8. Now, I want to stress, the planned EVA is unconfirmed and did not happen. But we will find out what did happen next week. Okay, I have posted some pictures and the audio for this episode on my homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Hope you check that out. I was very pleased to receive several new donations to support the podcast over the past week. Robert W. donated at the Soyuz level. Daniel J. from Australia donated at the Mercury level. Donald A. donated at the Mercury level. Toby S. from Arkansas donated at the Mercury level. Christian G. donated at the Vostok level. Karsten E. from Denmark donated at the Vostok level. Jacob B. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. Nathan S. from Australia pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. And Jerry D. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level. That brings our total Patreons to 145, the highest number we have had so far. Our goal is 150 by the end of the year. We are five short. Will we accomplish this goal? Maybe we might do it. Our total donors for the year have reached 296. That is four short of the goal of reaching 300. For those of you who are enjoying the content provided here and have not donated yet in 2017, please consider supporting the podcast if you're financially able. Keep in mind, Space Rocket History is entirely listener-funded. You don't have to make a big donation. You can make a small one, maybe $10 at the Vostok level, or sign up for Patreon for a small monthly donation, like a voluntary subscription. Just go to the homepage and click on one of the links on the top right side of the page and begin your support of the Space Rocket History Podcast. For those of you who have already donated for 2017, I certainly appreciate it. Have an item to give away this week. To our 2017 donors, it is the coveted NASA 3 and one inch diameter meatball sticker. To select a winner, we gave every donor a number, put in the range in Google's random number generator, and got the number for David Evans. David, if you would email me, mike at spacerockethistory.com, and tell me your address, I'll mail this out to you. We have several more of these stickers, so we'll have a new drawing from the 2017 donor group next week. I was pleased to see the podcast received three new five-star ratings on iTunes over the past week. I would like to thank Ashley Buller, me, 473-826-662-8394, and Gadget00 for the very kind reviews and giving the podcast the all-important five-star ratings. I appreciate you taking the time to do that. This is the end of content for this episode. You're welcome to stay and listen to my off-topic thoughts if you want. Thanks for sticking around, folks. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Next week, we will continue with Soyuz 678 and, coming soon, Apollo 12. 
In podcast statistics news, I would like to present the top 10 states of the United States for downloads in October. Here they are. California moved up to number one. Texas moved up to two. Florida moved up to three. Washington dropped to four. Illinois moved up to five. New York moved down to sixth. Pennsylvania moved up to seven. Virginia moved up to eight. The Old North State drops to number nine. Michigan moves up to ten. I want to give a big shout out to all the listeners in the top ten states for October. Well, we are celebrating Thanksgiving here in the U.S. on Thursday. I wanted to take the opportunity to send out a special thanks to all the donors who support this podcast. I can honestly say, without the donors, this podcast would not have lasted for four and three-quarter years. It takes between 20 to 40 hours of work for each episode I post. I just could not have made that kind of time commitment without the financial support of the donors. I also want to thank those of you who email me kind and encouraging words. They are very much appreciated. I want to thank those who give the podcast a five-star rating on iTunes and those who spread the word through social media. And a special thanks to Mrs. SRH for all the help she has given me this year. And a big thanks to Dave down at Ozzy HQ for finding the humor in some of the episodes. And to those of you who subscribe and listen regularly, there are a lot of you now. Thank you for listening. Okay, that's about all I have for this Thanksgiving Day episode. I'll try to have episode 234 ready by next Thursday. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody.